Well, just to let you know, the uh, starting pitcher's out this week, so they had to reach deep in the bullpen and uh, get the rookie pitcher here. They, the youth pastor, desperate times, calls for desperate measures sometimes. So, uh, Hey, did I ever tell you about the time uh, my son is in fifth grade and you know what career day is, right? Where you, you, you go in as a parent, you tell all the kids what you do and you get them all excited and find out what they want to be. So, so I go into my son's fifth grade class on career day, you know, get to tell him about the joys of being a, a youth pastor. And so uh, I'm going, I'm trying to get the kids all pumped up, you know, it's like a motivational talk. So it's like, hey, kids, just dream big. The sky is the limit. So tell me what you want to be when you grow up. So I'm just going around the room like, okay, girl, what's your name? Hi, I'm Hannah. Hannah, what do you want to be when you grow up? And Hannah says, I want to be a nurse. I'm like, Hannah, you can be a nurse. You can be a doctor. You can own a whole hospital. The sky's the limit. You go for it, girl. Who's next? And so a little girl here, uh, what's your name? Becca? Becca, tell me, what do you want to be when you grow up? She's like, a truck driver. You can be a truck driver. You show those dudes how to drive a truck. In fact, don't drive an 18-wheeler. You drive a 36-wheeler. You'd be twice as good. And so who's next? Another little girl in the back, Emma. Emma, what do you want to be? She's like, I want to be a beautician. You, you can be a beautician. In fact, you go to Great Clips and you be great. Come on. And so I'm thinking, I better get a dude in here. So there's a little boy in the back. I was like, okay, uh, dude, what's your name in the back? And he's like, Wayne. I was like, Wayne. Tell me, the sky is the limit, man. What do you want to be when you grow up? And Wayne says, I want to be an astronaut. And I look at him and go, are you kidding me, Wayne? Didn't you hear a word I said? I said, the sky is the limit. (laughs) Someone get him out of here. He doesn't even know how to pay attention. He's a great kid. Needless to say, that story is not true. I just threw myself in the mix there. But if you can imagine what a huge sense of discouragement that would be for a guy like Wayne that's shooting for the stars and can't get there, just a great feeling of discouragement that would come over you. Well, this morning, um, we're going to talk about another group of believers, new Judean believers in Acts chapter 15, as our sermon text this morning, um, as we find out about what this... Uh, visual, this visual example is up here as we look at these Judean believers and what we're going to call spiritual add-ons. All right, let's pray. God, thank you for a chance just to share your word, Lord. If we don't have, if we can't share your word through your spirit, what do we have to say? So, Lord, I, um, I myself ask that I would be subject to every word that I would speak. We pray for your spirit here as we celebrate your word, which brings life, which brings truth, which brings encouragement, and also reproof. So God, we just, we just receive it all. God, we thank you for your faithfulness by your word and your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you notice, um, if you've been here uh, for any length of time, you know the pastor Steve has been going through the book of Acts. So when he asked me to speak like at the beginning of the year, I said, uh, I can continue in the book of Acts. He said, I'd love for you to do that. So I said, Steve, where do you think you were going to be, you know, on Sunday, April 3rd? So we scooped it. I was like, yeah, Acts 15, that sounds right. So if you've been here, I think the last thing uh, Steve preached on was Acts chapter 9. So, so the good thing is for you, over the next month, it'll be like a prequel, an exciting prequel that you'll get to Acts 15. So it'll all be good. Um, so when we look at Acts chapter 15, we have to ask, what's going on in this season of the early church that makes this chapter so interesting? Well, it is the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles that really is the first noticeable breach with Judaism. 
And so uh, this, is, this was prophesied uh, by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 49. We'll take a quick look at it. This is what the Lord says to Isaiah centuries earlier. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also, everyone say also, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Paul was so jazzed about this. He quoted uh, this prophecy from Isaiah in Acts chapter 13 to those in Pisidian Antioch. So that brings us then to the dicey situation at hand um, in the beginning of Acts chapter 15. So let's begin our uh, story this morning. Uh, There are a certain number of people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers this. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. This is the discouragement of finding out that there are spiritual add-ons to the gospel. And this probably brought a great amount of discouragement, just kind of like Wayne felt when he found out he couldn't be an astronaut, feeling that salvation is too good to be true. The sky is the limit. There's a limit to God's grace. It reminded me of a story. This is a true story I'm about to tell you, mind you. So I always differentiate. So I have a great friend named Rich. He's, uh, he's a pastor up outside of Pittsburgh where I grew up. And so Rich, Rich's wife is named Ruth. She came to faith when she was in high school. She had this lovely grandmother that just prayed for her all the time. And finally, to her great joy, Ruth uh, came to a little revival service in their Baptist church. And so the, the, altar, uh, the altar was filled one evening after the uh, pastor gave the altar call. Ruth said she's experienced the presence of God, this compulsion to come forward. And so she comes up to the altar, you know, like this. She comes uh, running, hurrying up the altar and kneeling down and is just weeping before God in repentance like this. And the story is so beautiful. Uh, it takes a little bit of a turn when the same grandmother who's been praying for her, as she's at the altar, comes up out of her seat and walks to the front and gets down right beside her like this and says, Ruth, I'm so glad that you've found Jesus. Now here is a list of 15 rules that you have to keep every day in order to stay in God's grace. That is the truth of what she was told. You know, do not dance, do not swear, do not chew, do not go out with guys who do. You know, the whole, the whole drill. And so while that, didn't, while that certainly didn't take away from God's salvation, that poisoned her mind for years. She thought, I felt, you know, Ruth would say that there was a spiritual add-on to my salvation experience because I felt that it was tied to this legalistic charge of keeping the rules, that it's not all on God, but it's also my salvation is on me. So anyhow, these Jewish Christians that we're talking about here, they belonged to the party of the Pharisees, and they were no strangers to Paul. Paul had been in Antioch for over a year, and he was well acquainted with these guys. Remember, Paul used to be a Pharisee himself. So these Pharisaic Christians, who are often called Judaizers, everyone say Judaizers, we'll just refer to them as such, came down from Judea without authority, mind you, and wanted every Gentile Christian, in essence, to become a Jewish convert. They didn't really have a desire to extend the church through evangelism, but through placing strict requirements on those who were already saved by grace. Um, they kind of, you know, the, the term old wineskins, right? So that's the old way. And so when the new wine of the gospel cannot go into the old wineskins, uh, because what will happen? They'll burst. So 
when you bring an, your old wineskins to a good New Testament party of grace, it's kind of like bringing a bunt cake to a big fat Greek wedding party. It's all you know. This is my context. And you don't realize, man, I am really out of place here because God's doing a great new thing, this party of grace and forgiveness that there are no spiritual add-ons required. And so this is the reality that they're facing here um, in the beginning of Acts 15. Needless to say, Paul and Barnabas had no small discussion and debate with them over this. I think this is a great understatement by Luke. Oh, we had no small uh, debate. You know, you know the nature of Paul, right? I, I doubt Paul said, let's sit down and reason together over a cup of tea. I think you have a point here. I think in the Greek, it would probably be closer to saying Paul blew, blew a gasket and was all up in their grill. So I think that might be a little uh, closer to his reaction. Paul and Barnabas had been preaching the very opposite thing, that men were freed from this ancient Jewish rite, not just because Christ's sacrifice was enough, which is certainly true, but also because circumcision was an obstacle to the Greek and to the Roman converts who thought the rite of circumcision was ridiculous. They were completely offended by this rite. And Paul wants to see the gospel spread. And so this has become a stumbling block. This add-on has become a stumbling block to his uh, evangelism efforts. But to his credit, Paul realizes in the life of the church, this is the watershed moment where trajectories and destinies are changed. You know what a watershed is? We're in the Chesapeake Bay watershed. I don't know all the science of it, but you know, the highest point of a watershed, if two drops of rain come down on, the high, on either side of the highest point, one drop might end up in the Atlantic Ocean, the other one in the Mississippi River, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of miles apart. So that's the kind of moment they realize they're here. So as much as Paul and Barnabas would have loved to just put this issue to bed right then and there, put it to rest six feet under. They realized that this theological question of the relationship between Gentile believers and the law of Moses must be, that must be made by the collective wisdom of church leadership, by the spirit of God at what is called the Jerusalem Council. Guys, this determines the entire future of the church's evangelism. Um, and we find out, if you read Galatians 2, this is the first time since right after Paul's conversion. It's been 14 years since he made a trek to Jerusalem. Now he's going back, and he's going to meet up with all of the heavy hitters at the Jerusalem council. What is the council? Well, it's a veritable who's who. A red carpet meeting of church leadership, which included Paul, Barnabas, Peter, John, Titus, and James, the half-brother of Jesus, and the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and a host of other elders and church leaders who are not even mentioned. So here we have in verse 5, this is how the council begins. The Judaizers, they come and they restate their, um, their case, their theological case. They said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. You see, there are, um, there are no uncertain terms there. They're practically demanding that every Gentile become a Jew before he can become a Christian. 17th century scholar Johann Bengel said, it was an easier thing to make a Christian out of a Gentile than it was to overcome Pharisaic false teaching. So what happens, this council probably met for a long time and involved a lot of people. But Luke, who was the author of the Acts of the Apostles, he summarized the council by three main defenses, by three heavy hitters. And we'll just look at all three in here. The first one was by the Apostle Peter himself. Notice what it says there in verse uh, number seven. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. 
Can I just say one thing real quickly? This phrase almost got by me at first, after much discussion. I'm telling you what, if someone came up to me right now and said, hey Mark, how about this? Um, it's 2016, I got, I got this great idea. Why don't we start preaching the gospel that the gospel is only effective if we include the right of circumcision? I mean, how much discussion are we gonna have here? I'm like, mm, let's have a discussion. Um, no, go sit down, Aunt, thanks for playing. It's, it's a no-brainer nowadays, so why in the world would it, why in the world do they have so much discussion? Well, let's mind you, this is 2,000 years ago. Consider this. The first thing is there is no New Testament canon at the time. They did not have the privilege of holding this Bible uh, that we have the privilege of holding in with, uh, with, uh, with uh, the epistles, the gospels, the theological construct all beautifully laid out. They were men of the book, but they also had to be men of the spirit because the spirit is work, working in, in them to make this important decision now. From the time of Abraham to the time of Paul, all God followers were circumcised. That's just the way that it was. In fact, in Genesis, Genesis 17, 3, it says, circumcision is an everlasting covenant. It says everlasting covenant. And so like, wow, that, that's a long time. I think that's still going. And you know what? Jesus never explicitly taught that circumcision should stop. So think about that for a minute. All those, are, all those factors are at play. Don't you think it's an opportunity to have much discussion? And praise God, they rolled up their sleeves and they did the good work of the church. But after they were done discussing, Peter stands up and he says this, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you test God by putting on their necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor their ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe that it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as we are. So you know what Peter's saying here is like, this isn't just a spiritual add-on. This is a, this is a, um, this is a heavy yoke of bondage. For hundreds, for centuries, our forefathers and foremothers have not been able to bear the yoke of the law. Jesus came to set us free from that. And how dare we go back? How dare we? Why is Peter so passionate about this? Well, one thing for sure. Uh, flashback 10 years earlier. Do you remember what happened? Peter is minding his own business and he falls into a trance. And he, he sees a sheet let down from heaven with all of these unclean four-footed animals. And uh, God says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he says, Lord, may it never be. And then he responds to him and says, hey, whatever I have called clean, do not dare call unclean. And so this is the beginning of a huge revelation for the church. And so at that time, there's a knock at the door. There's the, the servants of Cornelius. Cornelius is a Gentile, you know, um, a Roman, uh, searching for Peter. And so one thing leads to another. Peter, uh, Peter's preaching the gospel message to them. And in uh, 1044, this is such a great verse. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all those who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. And I just thought, the look on their face, it must have been something uh, like that. Ah, <laughs> oh, the face of a circumcised believer when the Spirit is given to a Gentile. 
That's James Harden from the NBA, by the way. But I thought, yeah, that's probably what it was like. Can you imagine if they went out to the bathroom and came in while Peter served, and then you see, I mean, the shock, like what is happening here to these uncircumcised heathen? And so there's a notation here that, that Peter equates the giving of grace, sal- salvific or salvation grace, with the giving of the Spirit that is regenerating their hearts. Now, these are the last words of Peter that are recorded by Luke in the book of Acts. Um, and I think he ends on a high note. There's a pivot here because now Luke, as the writer of the Acts of the Apostles, no longer really mentions Peter. Uh, doesn't really talk about him. Now, Paul becomes the focus of, uh, of his writing. Speaking of Paul, defense number two, there's Paul and his faithful sidekick Barnabas. They get up in verse, in verse 12 there. It says, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders that God had done to the Gentiles through them. So through uh, Cyprus, Asia Minor, Lystra, Derby. If you ever were at a party with Paul, you you would just plant right beside him and just listen to tell all of his stories. They would be incredible. And so here, he doesn't feel the need to go on this long theological discourse, which we know Paul can do. But rather, he does one thing. He shares what God has been doing through, uh, through them to bring the Gentiles to faith, through faith. So the cool thing is, their testimony is becoming theology as Luke records it. It's so amazing to, to look back in hindsight. Wow, that counsel, now, now the, 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 the literal words, the, the gospel, uh, the, the canon that is penned, uh, it was theology that was in motion, historically unfolding before their very eyes. Um, uh, later on, Paul would write to the Romans, probably with the, with the council in mind. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, is one. Do we then nullify the law through this faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. This is Paul's verdict. If only God can work miracles and bring people to faith. He is doing it through us in the midst of the Gentiles. And none of these conversion accounts have anything to do with the right of circumcision or a command to obey the law of Moses. God is expanding his kingdom borders, church, and they all need to get on board. This is a paradigm shift. It's a game changer. We mentioned it's a watershed moment for the church. It's like Isaiah 49 is being fulfilled right before their eyes. And I think this is a great shot in the arm. This actually kicks off Paul's second missionary journey with a bang. Then we come to the third defense. This is the Apostle James. He is the half-brother of Jesus. He was the head of the Jerusalem church. He's probably the chairman of the council at this great meeting. So after quoting from the prophet Amos to show that the Messiah has come to be the Lord of all, not just the Lord of some, James issues a very practical, pragmatic verdict. Do you all ever read the book of James? It is as practical as it comes. If you're a new Christian, have him read the book of James. He just, he just spells it out like it is. And so this is his, after all the discourse, he just says this. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Isn't that beautiful in its simplicity? Hey, guys, we heard it all. Let's not make it difficult. Let's not give the spiritual add-ons and, not make, it, and make it easy for them who are turning to God by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. Uh, Norman Geisler once said, before we can share the gospel, we sometimes have to smooth the road 
and remove the obstacles that keep others from coming to Christ. How many of you ever felt that that was your ministry to do that? How many of you feel like you were obstacle clearers in the lives of unsaved friends? Yeah, it's a good ministry. The practical verdict, uh, and the, the Greek actually gets at this, uh, do not trouble or do not crowd in on someone with obstacles and distractions from pure, from pure faith in Christ. To the Judaizers, he's saying, guys, stop crowding in on them and demanding that from them, which God does not even demand from them. And uh, remove the obstacles of yoke from around their necks. And you know what? Start being grateful for the great stuff that God is doing. And so here's the deal. The cross, as we know, guys, it's a, it's, by its very nature, is a stumbling block of offense to the world. But far be it from us that we should ever do any spiritual add-ons that would add another obstacle on the road to the cross. Amen. So verse, uh, verse 20 and 21, James does make, he gives some words of wisdom here. He doesn't make, a, he doesn't replace one spiritual add-on for another. He says circumcision, not required. But he does make some suggestions of wisdom that they don't eat certain foods that are tainted because of their connection to idols. Idol worship was prevalent at the time. To not eat certain kind of sacrificial meats that had blood in them and to abstain from sexual immorality. Why did he say this? Well, these are suggestions, guys, that will help promote fellowship and unity among Gentiles and Jewish believers. Guys, you think that we have, you think, uh, you know, modern day America is a very um, segregated place on Sunday morning. It was very segregated back then. They had a lot of wall tearing down to do. They had to bring them together. So unity and fellowship was so important. They said, listen, um, this, is, um, this isn't a spiritual add-on, but these are, these are words, these are pearls of wisdom. If we want fellowship, if we need to come together as a church, Jews and Gentiles, then we've got to give up these rights to do these things. And I thought it was a beautiful thing because without fellowship, there is no unity. Without unity, the church's ability to proclaim the gospel is hamstrung. So anyhow, James pens an official letter, puts it up on Facebook so the whole world knows, sends it out to the churches everywhere that paves the way for tremendous spiritual growth of the gospel. So let's turn the corner here and bring it a little bit closer to home. Because what we're talking here is this cross represents the essentials of the faith. Well, not many people here in this church are probably inclined to do a uh, spiritual add-on to the doctrine of salvation. If you do, uh, I would suggest you make an appointment with Neil Ellison right away and he will set you straight. The question is this, do you know why we don't mess? Do you know why we don't mess with doctrines like salvation? Do you know why? Because they are considered essentials of the faith. These are the non-negotiables of the Christian faith that are applicable to all of us across time and space. We can call it straight jacket, straight jacket beliefs if you want, because you know why? There is no wiggle room, all right? There's no wiggle room. They're, they are rock solid. And if you want to wiggle your arm out and put an add-on onto uh, the essential of salvation, well, congratulations, you just may be a heretic. So I think there's a special club for those folks. So what are the essentials of the faith? What are they? Let's not take these for granted. Here are just a few, and I summarized them as best I could. The essentials of our Christian faith is one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, the Trinity. The virgin birth of Christ was fully God and fully man. The once and for all sacrifice of Christ on the cross. 
Salvation that is by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. The literal, the literal and bodily resurrection of Jesus and the fact that Christ will again return to earth personally, visibly, and bodily to judge the living and the dead. Guys, this is called orthodoxy or right belief. All right, this is good old-fashioned Apostles' Creed kind of stuff. So um, you can see that visual there in the, more, in the, in the bottom left, bottom right corner. Um, we have a beliefs and values page on our KPC website. If you don't know what the essentials are, you should. I'm giving you, I'm not saying shame on you. I'm giving you encouragement to check it out. You should go there. And if you really want to roll up your sleeves and dig into all of these essentials, I'm just telling you, know, the pastoral staff here at KPC would recommend that you check out the Westminster Confession of Faith. You'll be in there for a long time. It's gorgeous, beautiful stuff. Did you know this? Did you know something? The KPC is part of a great denomination. We are part of what's called the EPC or the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Um, just to let you know, the uh, EPC was founded in 1981, um, about seven years before I graduated, graduated high school, Brian. Thank you very much. And it was, it, was, it was birthed out of a zealous desire to keep the Word of God and the Great Commission central. In fact, even up there I see uh, we have Mark Jumper. Hello, Mark. Um, did you know that uh, Mark Jumper, he's part of denominational history and lore. His dad was one of the three founding fathers of the APC, Andrew Jumper, uh, back in 1981. And so we kind of have a, not just a legend in his own mind, but a legend in all of our minds. So it's great to have you here, Mark. Um, but you know what I love about the EPC is our motto. Now, we didn't, we didn't invent it, but we took it and we use it. And um, that is, you probably cannot read it up there at all. So I will, it's actually written, you know, on the, around the outside of the logo, but it says this. In the essentials, there is unity. In the non-essentials, there is liberty. And in all things, there is charity. So in the first one, in the essentials unity, these are, again, these are the core beliefs of the Christian faith, the common ground on which Baptists and Presbyterians and Pentecostals and Methodists and Quakers, we can all stand around the cross of Christ on these essentials. That's what makes us Christian. So the essentials, uh, I should say this, that when we go to the next one, this is easy. We go to the next one here. These are the non-essentials. And non-essentials, liberty. Another word for liberty is freedom. So what does that mean? Well, non-essentials, first of all, does not mean not important. You got that? It does not mean not important, but rather it's the holding of these particular theological views that are not essential to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. There is freedom. There is elbow room there. We got a little bit of wiggle room here for interpretation. The Lord himself, even in Matthew 23, 23, he curses the, you know, he, uh, he says, woe to the Pharisees because... Um, here it is, you give a tenth of your, spice, your, your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Jesus himself distinguishes that there are more important things in Scripture than others, things that carry more weight, uh, like justice, mercy, faithfulness. And I thought, man, that is great. Here's a great rule of thumb for y'all. If, if we begin to get caught up in the small things the Scripture says at the expense of the themes that, that, that Scripture repeatedly says, we are going to be off balance. These are, these non-essentials, guys, are historically hotly debated issues where the Bible is either silent 
or ambiguous, open to compelling yet different interpretations on both sides. I tell you what, millions of people that love Jesus more than you and me over the centuries have fallen on all sides of these non-essential issues. Um, just remember that while, while these blessed scriptures may be without error, our ability to interpret them is not. Can we just for a minute realize, man, let's, let's just own some humility and say, yeah, you know what? They, I believe this. They believe that. They might be right. Maybe I don't have the full picture. Maybe they don't have the full picture. But that is, that is the nature of non-essentials. Again, it's not that they're not important. But this is, as Christians, this is where we can get ourselves into trouble. Because um, if we're not careful, we can make these as spiritual add-ons of our own. These add-ons aren't like the Judaizers, what they did. You're not, you're not going to be heretics for putting up one of these. But these non-essentials are more subtle. And they, they can be used as an insidious rationale to pass judgment on other Christians, deeming their spiritual walk as more immature or even sinful because of the add-ons we put on for the non-essentials. Okay, Mark, just make it clear. What, what are you talking about? What are some non-essentials? Well, here's five of them. Here are, here are some non-essentials of faith. Again, this isn't an exhaustive list. Some of you might think it's an exhausting list, but here we go. Uh, one is gifts of the Spirit. Did you know there are churches that are cessationists, which means they believe that the miraculous working of the Spirit of God stopped with it when, when John died in the Isle of Patmos years ago. And then you have churches like KPC that embrace the current day working of the Spirit of God. The role of women in ministry. And on some extremes, uh, you have... Uh, you have Women that in some churches that wear head coverings and you, you, they're silenced church mice. And then, for instance, just across the street at the Rock Church, there's, there's a woman pastor that has authority over men and women. You know what? These are non-essentials, right? And, you know, and you have preferences and you go where you feel uh, comfortable in that. Eschatology or the study of end times. Uh, there, are, there are folks in this church that believe we're in the millennial reign of Christ. Others believe that it hasn't started yet. Others can't wait for the rapture. Others like there's really no such thing as the rapture. And you know what? These are non-essentials and they've been debated for a long, long time and people come down to both sides of these. I remember I had a friend who was, when he found out that I had a different end times view than he did, he looked at me like I was on the fast train to Hades. And I said, oh, dude, I don't care that we have different views. What I care about, what disturbs me, is that you think that yours is the only view in the world that's valid. Dude, this is a non-essential. We're not talking about Christ on the cross. We're talking about eschatology. We're talking about end times. Um, baptism. There's infant baptism. There's believer's baptism. Churches go uh, differ on that. The age of the earth. Some believe the age of the earth is 6,000 years old. Others be- other Christians believe that's millions of years old. And these are just non-essentials. Um, they are, they're kind of like, using an academic term, they're kind of like minors. You know, it's not your major. The essentials are your majors. The non-essentials are your minors. There's another iteration of non-essentials that I like to call issues of conscience. These are convictions of personal choice and preference where a strict absolute is not laid down for us in Scripture. Um, there are no, these are not moral absolutes that are black and white. And these tend to be more issues of Christian lifestyle than they are of doctrine. So, um, just, I'm just going to give you a list of these because I know that they're, I'm not going to give commentary on them. 
Uh, but I know that there are folks in this church that come down on wildly different sides of some of these issues of conscience, all right? So all I'm going to do is uh, name them. Here we go. Social drinking, to drink or not to drink is the question. Second one, Halloween, the celebration of Halloween or the abstaining of celebrating anything dealing with October 31st. Schooling. You know what I love about being a youth pastor here at Crossfire? We have homeschooled kids, public school kids, and Christian school kids all come together. They don't care what school they go to, and they just all love Jesus together. It's so sweet. Um, parental discipline. You want to not make friends? You want to lose friends that are parents? Just tell them that your way is, or the highway, that your way is the best way. What's another one? Harry Potter. This next one I'm going to show you has, really has no bearing for where we are at this time in our, in our history, but I'll mention it anyhow. <laughs> About politics, let me just say, nothing. <laughs> Sabbath rest. We all believe that the Sabbath is special, but how people actually um, have freedom of conscience to enjoy uh, you know, I went to Geneva College where you weren't allowed to wash your clothes on Sunday because I was breaking the Sabbath, you know? And, um, and I didn't wash my clothes anyhow, so it didn't really matter. <laughs> um, entertainment. Are you not entertained? Um, we're talking about video games, the music you listen to, Christian, secular, the television shows, the stuff you watch on Netflix, entertainment, or conscience issues. Um, dating or courting. We have families that come down on both sides of that. Um, Bible translation. You know, I've, I've seen bumper stickers that say, if it ain't King James, it ain't Bible. But there is true. Did you know that there's a best translation? I'm telling you right now. Not the KJV, not the NIV, but the USED. The used version. All right, stay with me, people. Stay with me. All right. <laughs> Make sure it's nice and worn. Um, tattoos and piercings. By the way, that says no regerts, by the way, which I love that slide. Um, gun ownership and styles of worship. So the list could go on and on, but uh, those are some that I know are deeply um, affected uh, by folks in here embraced. Let me just say that in uh, Romans 14 and 15, Paul writes on the Christian conscience and he summarizes it like this. It's more important to be loving than it is to be right. We have, Christian, we have liberty in our Christian consciences. I'm so glad we do. But they must always yield to the law of love and do what's in the best interest of other people. Amen. And so look, and that's, the, that's the last phrase of the, of the EPC's motto. In all things, charity. Let's say that, say, say that together. In all things, charity. In all things, love. So here's our application as we wrap up. For our purposes today, these non-essentials can be considered, like I mentioned, spiritual add-ons. And the danger is when we treat these majors or these minors like majors, these gray areas like they're black and white, and we use them as a valid reason to pass judgment on other believers. Guys, we are better than that. Let's not do that. To see them as less than or sellouts or compromising because they don't see the issues the same way that we do. Here's some solid advice. You ready for some solid advice? And it's true because it rhymes. <laughs> Hold your convictions tightly. Deal them out lightly. Let's say that together. Hold your convictions tightly and deal them out lightly. Uh, 
In Romans 14, Paul says, let each man be convinced in his own mind. I'm not asking us to be a bunch of convictionless. Oh, whatever you say is good. It's all good. Let's just tolerate everything. No. We need to be a church that has deep convictions about the essentials and the non-essentials. But when that, when that non-essential becomes a wrecking ball, swinging through the lives of other people, guys, our love always has to be bigger than our convictions. Amen. And as far as others go, remember, we're not the judge. I'm not the judge of your conscience. You're not the judge of mine. The Bible says, let each stand to his own master, rise and fall. If you think that somebody else would benefit from your point of view, discuss it with them. Pray for them, you know, and let God change them. You might find out he might change you along the way, which has happened to me. Amen. So we just love in spite, love and unity in spite of difference. So here's our conclusion. Just like the the council's decision to promote fellowship and unity for the sake of the gospel, we need to not let the the less weighty matters of the non-essentials and the issues of conscience divide and conquer us. Because fellowship and unity, they matter big time. Guys, scripture is clear. Scripture is so clear. And the power, how blessed it is for when God's people dwell together in unity. So, can I ask, as we, as we begin to close in prayer, can you consider these things? There might be some things that we need to change or repent of. I'll just list a few. Can I do that? Neglecting the essentials that bring us all together. Sometimes we've just neglected them. That, that, is, that is a dangerous thing to do. Where we major in the minors that pull us apart. Where we're going to take a non-essential and it's like, I'm going to die on this hill. You should never die on the hill of a non-essential, ever. You die on the hill of the essentials. You die for Jesus and this. But that, you you can take a bullet, take a hamstring, take a broken leg on the the non-essentials, but never, never die there. It's not going to be worth it. And Jesus doesn't call us to that. Using our issues of conscience to judge others as less than, not not being grateful enough for so great a salvation, one that was purchased for us by so great a savior. It's so great to know when it comes to salvation, the sky is not the limit. And it is not too good to be true. Or maybe some of us like the Judaizers, we see others as impossible to come to faith. You know, they, the Judaizers, they would look and see a Gentile, but pff, God is no place for them. Don't we do that? There are people in our lives that you look at them like they are out of God's reach. Far be it from us. Nothing is impossible with God. And let's remember the whole purpose in the context of Acts 15. The church needs to come together in unity, not just for the sake of harmony in the body, not just so we can say, oh, it is all well with our hallelujah, what's it to you club. But we come together for the advancement of the gospel. That's what, that's what this whole chapter is about. So let's repent and get over the pettiness that divides us and get on with what's part of our mission, the Great Commission. The Jerusalem Council paved the way for us, guys the church here in 2016, to share in the message of the gospel that is by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. Amen. I need to pray right here. So here's the deal. We're going to close with a, with a song, uh, a short song called This I Believe. And as I do that, I'm going to invite the altar ministers, altar ministers to come forward. And if you want to come up, if you need prayer, whether it has anything to do with a sermon or not, we always want to give you the opportunity to get prayer uh, for whatever you need to respond to some of the words today. Uh, that would be a great thing. Amen? All right, Lord, let's pray, shall we? Lord, you're so awesome. We love you. We thank you for the essentials of the faith. We thank you that Christ on his cross 
so magnificent to behold. We thank you that in a world of, of extreme and complete diversity, that you have brought together and weaved together a gospel message that is rock solid and that we can, we can find connection and hope across the globe and across the centuries as we come to the foot of the cross and we celebrate these essentials. God, you are so awesome. We love you. We thank you. Lord, and my prayer is that we would all hold very deep convictions about the essentials, the non-essentials alike, but in all things, Lord, that we would remember charity and love, love for our brothers and sisters in this room, and that there is nothing, there's no issues that's worth dividing over. And Lord, certainly love for our, our unsaved neighbors, our lost friends and strangers that so desperately need to hear the gospel. God, far be it from us to put in any obstacles on the path to the cross. God, we love you. Help us. Help us to respond well and appropriately to your word today. In Jesus' name.